In 2015, director Denis Villeneuve and star Emily Blunt gave the world a spiraling drama that descends into the depths of the cartel drug trade. In 2021, we try a familiar brand at Barrel Proof. The film is Sicario. The whiskey is Wild Turkey Rare Breed. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2015 film Sicario. You can't do this. You can't. I'm sure she's not the person you're going to hide it all behind. You need to just take a breath. You're going to f***ing talk? No, you're not. Yeah. I'm gonna tell everyone what you did. That would be a major mistake. Brad, we are recording on the day after Christmas. Uh, I am just waking up from my food-induced coma. Uh, how are you doing today, man? Bro, I'm doing great. I drank a just metric crap ton of Hartzler's eggnog, mm. which if you are from the Northeast Ohio area, you know what I'm talking about. It's the greatest stuff on the it's planet. It's so good. It is so good. But yeah, spent time with family, opened a few presents. Uh, my in-laws got us a gas-powered generator. Oh, nice. And, you know, it's 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 a great present someday. And, and on that one day, <laughs> it will really I am going to be handy. so yeah. thankful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. I'm really excited to be here today, Brad, talking about a movie that is relatively recent by the standards of our podcast. We typically don't see movies from the last five or so years. It was a movie that I went to the theater to see, and I had seen uh, Denis Villeneuve's previous movie, Prisoners, and loved it. And so as soon as this movie came out, I was like, I want to go see this guy's next movie. He's such a fantastic director. Went to the theater. There was like five people there. I felt like this movie flew under the radar. And then after it kind of came out on video and was hitting, you know, HBO and, and then streaming services, it really picked up a huge following enough that the studio ended up making a sequel a few years after the fact. But all that to say, Brad, it's really cool to be talking about a movie that still seems relatively recent to me. And I have to ask you, coming into this podcast, had you seen or heard of Sicario before we recorded this episode? Uh, I had heard of it. I had never seen it. I think I knew that Emily Blunt was in it. Um, I didn't know that Thanos was in it. But uh, I, I, I remember hearing about it. But no, I, I had never seen it. And I, I also want to make a note that it, we're, we're not trying to sound pretentious in any way with this pronunciation uh, we literally spent about, I don't know, 10 minutes before we recorded, <laughs> like practicing uh, Denny Villeneuve's name because it is not easy to pronounce. I told Brad that we should just do a Patreon uh, exclusive episode, which was just me and him going back and forth going, Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> Denny? Denny? <laughs> but anyways, Bob, I'm really excited that we watched Sicario because Man, I just, it was just a phenomenal movie. It's a great movie. I, like, it is gripping. 
the pacing is probably some of the best pacing I've ever seen in a movie. I, I was very happy that this uh, fell on the docket for this this season. Yeah, and that's something that I've really come to appreciate about uh, Villeneuve's movies is that he really, the word that comes to mind watching this movie and also watching Prisoners, I would say, is the word dread. There's just this sense of impending dread throughout the movie. Every time that the main character played by Emily Blunt gets into a situation where, you know, she doesn't know what she's getting into and you as the audience don't know what's coming next. It's not just suspense. It's this combination of the slowly moving camera by Roger Deakins and the way that the color palette is is put together. It's that score that's just this this droning kind of score. This movie is incredibly suspenseful, but in a way that you have this sense in the pit of your stomach that like everything's going to go bad. And I really, really loved how perfectly he kind of crafted that mood in this film. Yeah, Bob, every step of this movie feels like heavy, Uh, like almost like Emily Blunt is moving through this movie as if she's moving through a swamp. Mm -hmm. Like, like she struggles to get through every single thing. And then the moment that she feels relaxed and like she's in control of her situation, she's once again plunged into this reality that she has no control Yeah, and that other people are controlling her life. And it, and it's terrifying. And you, the audience, I, I think if there's a problem with this movie, it's simultaneously Emily Blunt's character, and yet I love Emily Blunt in this. But I, if there's a problem with it, it is that sense of helplessness because you just don't feel like Emily Blunt literally has a choice from almost the first scene of the movie on. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as as an audience, you feel that helplessness, but that's also... What's so great about the movie? I I don't know. Do you get what I'm like? Absolutely. And we're going to get into explaining the movie here in a second. But on this watch through Brad, I was really reminded of, I don't know, like everything about this movie feels familiar, like the, the story beats and the idea of, you know, like the new kind of trainee who doesn't know what they're getting into and there's corruption and it's the drug trade and. Like parts of this movie feel like, oh, I I feel like I've seen something like this before. And yet it's done in such a way that it, I don't know if I would say that it's the most original thing I've ever seen, but it it just feels like, you know, singular. It feels like it's a movie that stands on its own apart from all those things. As I'm watching it, I'm thinking back to when Benicio Del Toro did the movie Traffic in the early 2000s. And, you know, I compared it to you. We were, we were talking about the pacing of it. And I said, it's kind of like No Country for Old Men. You know, it's not bang, 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 shoot them up kind of stuff. There's like this impending sense of dread that's building. And it does seem similar to those movies in a way, but I love that it never seems like it is copying those films or, or you know, borrowing too much from them. It does seem like it is a, a singular sort of vision that it's not replicating something else. Well, and you're also looking at this as a film in what I would call like a modern military universe. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there, like there's tons and tons of movies set in the World War II universe. And there's, you know, now there's been a few maybe in the World War One, And you see these films about different eras in human history, like The Patriot, um, or even movies about the Vietnam War. But there's a few movies about modern warfare, like a Zero Dark Thirty, that yeah. I think that Sicario falls into. And, you know, of all of those style movies that I've seen, I, I think Sicario is hands down one of the best. Absolutely. Well, Brad, I think we've kind of talked around it for a long time. There's probably people listening who have not seen the movie Sicario yet. 
Uh, and if that's the case, I would highly recommend you going out and watching it. Brad, I don't know what your thoughts on the film are, but I love this movie. So I'm excited to talk about it. And the first stop on the way is to get to the segment that we like to call Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. And that is the case today. So, Brad, can you give us a really brief walkthrough of the plot of the film Sicario? Yeah, Bob, I would love to. The film Sicario is about a younger uh, FBI agent who works with hostage situations uh, named Kate Maser. And as she is working in, I don't know, I believe Arizona, right? Mm -hmm. As she's on the job in Arizona, she is in a series of raids. Uh, they show one of them where they're they're basically closing in on a lot of drug cartel members um, coming out of Mexico. And after a specific raid where an explosive goes off after the raid is finished and kills a few guys, um, she's called in to kind of debrief things with some higher-ups. And she is basically assigned to a joint task force to help take down the cartel in the Arizona region and moving into Mexico. Very quickly, though, she realizes that the man she's partnered up with, played by Josh Brolin, um, is not who he seems to be. Um, eventually, you find out that he's CIA and that the reason she is with them is that they, in order for the CIA to operate in the U.S., they have to be partnered with a national departmental agency like the FBI. So they're basically using Kate as a pawn to do whatever the heck they want. And she quickly realizes that she has literally no control over what's happening. Um, she meets a man named Alejandro, who is a dark, mysterious Colombian man who seems to be helping with the CIA. And she realizes that he is actually part of the Colombian drug cartel and that they're working together to take out high ranking member of the Mexican cartel. I, and it's crazy. I, I guess I'm probably just going to leave it there, Bob. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, they take down the cartel member and it's bloody and it's gruesome and it's it's just brutal. Yeah, Brad, one of the things that I really love about this movie is that when you kind of just lay out all the plot points, there's not a whole lot going on in this movie. I mean, there's like, you know, there's a couple of huge action set pieces the trip into Juarez, Mexico and back out again, and then the trip at the end of the movie into the tunnel and back out again. And those are really like the two big things that happen in this movie. And you find out a couple plot points along the way. You find out uh, that Josh Brolin and Benito del Toro are technically working with the CIA as they were suspecting the whole time that Emily Blunt is kind of being used and that the CIA is working with assassins to get really down and dirty in this fight against the cartel. And I really like that there's not a whole lot of plot bogging things down here because it lets the acting performances shine. And I think it also lets the director shine as well. You know, he took a script that is pretty bare bones in terms of what people are saying. There's not a lot of dialogue spoken in this movie. And yet it always feels like this movie has so much forward momentum that there's always a purpose to what you're seeing on the screen, even if it's just a very still stationary, you know, setup, a, a camera shot. Everything seems to have a purpose. And I think that it works to the movie's betterment that there's not a, a, a whole lot of convoluted plot elements to get lost in here. Well, Bob, normally we finish up Brad Explains and a lot of times we'll go in and talk about the acting performances. But really, for me, I think the star of this film is Roger Deakins working his magic with the cinematography. 
the, like this movie, the way it moves, the way every shot is placed, the camera, the camera work itself is reflective of the world that Emily Blunt is living in, right? Mm-hmm. Like every single part of this movie is measured and controlled and everything is thought out to the nth degree. And it reflects, you know, the character of Josh Brolin and Benicio del Toro that everything they do is so perfectly planned and thought out and measured that, like, I couldn't help but notice that everything about this movie just was a reminder that Emily Blunt was not in control and that that she was in a world of not her own. And yeah. I just thought that the camera work in this movie was was beyond amazing. And the funny thing about it, too, though, is, Brad, like you can see similarities between the way that Roger Deakins shot this movie and the way that he shot No Country for Old Men. Like there's kind of similar palettes because they're in the desert. And yet at the same time, this looks very different from a Coen Brothers kind of movie. Like it it has a very kind of I guess the word I would use is like sleek look to it. And maybe part of it is just because it's so kind of hyper modern that there's moments in it where you know, the camera is basically showing like a thermal, <laughs> thermal heat vision kind of camera. There's night vision that's spliced in here and there, but it still definitely retains some of those things we've come to expect from looking at movies that were filmed by Roger Deakins. And I just think it's so interesting that like, you know, we can go from watching No Country to watching this and see the similarities and yet also see how he's able to adapt his style to what the director needs for that movie. Bob, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pull back from Sicario for a second. Is that okay? Yeah. And I want to ask a noob question about filmmaking. Because, like, I'm starting to get it because I've watched, you know, 300 films for this podcast (laughs) or so it feels like. And, you know, when I thought about the director of a movie, I always thought that the director was the one behind the camera doing all the filming. And obviously that's not the case. That's, you know, the director of photography is the one who's doing more of that. So talk to me what it looks like in a movie. Like, what is the full role of the director then if he's not the one like controlling every single camera shot or is he Uh, like talk me through that? Well, I mean, it, it really depends on the level of control that a filmmaker, a director kind of wants over a project, right? Like there are movies where or there are certain directors who are so meticulous about what they want to see on the screen that they will go through a whole process of what's called storyboarding before they even get to filming the movie where like the director of photography and the director of the movie will sit down and basically like draw pictures of what they want each shot to look like because it's, it's so ingrained in the director's head. This is what I need it to look like. And so the director of photography will basically come alongside the director and say, okay, Well, we'll use this type of lens for that. We'll put people in these positions and things like that. We'll light it in this particular way. So the director of photography is really responsible for bringing the director's vision to life. You know, the director might have an idea of how he wants the frame to look, where he wants the actors to be in the frame, but maybe he doesn't have quite, he or she doesn't have quite the, you know, the expertise in terms of like what lenses to use on the camera or, you know, um, how to particularly light a set or wherever they're filming that day. And that's kind of where the director of photography comes in. But the director's job is way bigger than that. Like they're also dealing with how to get the kind of performances that they think they need to get, you know, to make the character in the script make sense. Is an actor going too far over the top? Is an actor being too restrained? 
They're worried about, we want to keep a sense of movement about the film. They have basically the whole movie mapped out in their minds if they're a good director. And so the director of photography is just one person that comes alongside to help capture the vision that's in the director's head. All right. I appreciate that. I, it's 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 little things like that that as as I keep watching these movies and delving deeper into the depths of of cinema, you do start to kind of wonder. You're like, oh man, like th- things aren't the way I thought that they were as a novice film watcher. Right. Well, and then there's so. this there's this whole thing where you know, if anybody out there has taken any sort of entry level film class, you've heard this phrase, but this whole thing that took root in the 1950s and 60s called the auteur theory which was this theory that was developed by a bunch of critics that basically said, you know, uh, in the olden days of movies, the producer got a lot of credit because like they put the money up for the movie, but it actually is the, the director that we should be following because they're like the author of the movie. They're like writing the film that we see with our eyes essentially. And that kind of, in a way it kind of screwed up film criticism for a long time because everything good or bad about a movie ended up getting dumped onto a director. Like the buck stops with the director. And there's a lot of areas in watching a movie, Brad, where it's it's hard to know, like, was this a decision that the actor made or did the director direct them to do that? Or this movie looks beautiful. Is that a result of the director or is that a result of the director photography? This movie moves at a really cool pace. Is that a result of the director or is that the editor? So I think sometimes we give too much credit to the director because we just don't quite know exactly who to give credit to. But you know, it's it's definitely more of a collaborative process than we sometimes give it credit for. Right. And that's and that sounds like why we look at directors like Stanley Kubrick, who are, you know, famous for their just how anal they are about everything. Yeah. And the auteur theory would probably apply to him a little more directly than some other directors. Yeah, that's probably a fair point. And, and Brad, I mean, we've kind of talked around the director of this movie, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, for a while now, I really like him. I like everything he's done. I thought the Blade Runner sequel was fantastic. You, I mean, I know that you've seen at least one other of his movies because you just talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, Arrival. That was the movie that he did, I think, directly after this one, or, or he might have one more in between. But I just think that he has such a fantastic sense of uh, building dread and and showing kind of like the depths of human darkness in his movies in a way that I hadn't really seen since like a David Fincher. When I watched Villeneuve's movies, like it really does remind me of watching early David Fincher, like seven or fight club or movies like that. And I, I think that excites me to see that we have another director who's operating kind of on that level here. I was going to say, I, I had forgotten that Villeneuve had done Arrival, and I absolutely <laughs> loved me some Arrival, Bob. So yeah, count me a fan. I, uh, I I like what I've seen from him so far. I'm not sure if I've seen anything other than Sicario and Arrival, but I might have to look up some more of his films because once again, in this movie, Bob, you, you've hit the nail on the head. He has created a suspenseful horror film without any fantastical elements that you normally find in horror. Mm. If anything, the true horror in this movie is the depth and depravity that humans will go to fight the depth and depravity of other humans. Yes, exactly. Like that, like that is the terrifying part of this film. So if anything, it does kind of feel like a modern take on a horror film. There's a new deal, Ted. I'm the one who decides whether your daughter get federal protection. 
Awful. Whether we post your ex-wife's address on the internet. I decide whether you go to prison in a work camp in Missouri or a kill house like Corcoran. This is where you negotiate how to survive, my friend. Well, and on that note, Brad, I think we should touch on these performances before we go to our break. And the person that is the audience's conduit in this movie is Emily Blunt. And and the thing I love about her character, Brad, is that we know as much as she knows pretty much at all times until the end of the movie. And we'll talk about that great kind of I don't want to call it a twist, but like it's a change in protagonists at the end of the movie. Like we follow somebody else for the last 20 minutes of the movie, basically. But for the most part, we're following Emily Blunt's character as she is this kind of green FBI agent who is plunged into this world of double crossing and, you know, unethical behavior by these CIA operatives who are working to fight the cartels. And the great thing about that is that Villeneuve has to give us so many visual cues so that Emily Blunt's character and we, the audience, kind of start to pick up on things. And I'm thinking, like, in particular, there's this scene where they go into Juarez, Mexico, to essentially kidnap a high-ranking cartel member and bring him back across the border to the United States. And as they're leaving Mexico, a couple blocks over, there is a car that is very clearly from the cartel that is like trailing them. And you can only really see it as they pass each city block and the buildings end and you can see the car there again. And someone calls Emily Blunt's attention to it. And then you, as the audience member, start to get a little bit more, I guess, uh, discerning about looking for things in the frame and where is the threat lurking from and where are they coming from? And it's great because it makes you a more aware viewer of the movie. But I also think that Emily Blunt does such a good job with her performance in kind of bringing us along with her. We're feeling what she's feeling, her confusion, her fear, her resolve that things are not what they're supposed to be. And this is not right what we're doing here. She really does kind of guide us through this movie, and it's a combination of of her great performance and Villeneuve's direction kind of cueing us into some of these things that she's learning along the way, too. Well, I, th- I think what crystallized for me as you were talking about Blunt's performance, Bob, was that the camera in this movie literally watches Emily Blunt for the majority of the film. Like you said, there's about that 10 to 20 minutes at the end where we find where we follow Alejandro. And I realized that the camera is not representing Emily Blunt's point of view at all. It is representing Graver and Alejandro's point of view. And the minute that Emily Blunt is expendable, she gets shot in the chest by Alejandro, him knowing that she wouldn't die. And the camera immediately follows Alejandro to his destination mm-hmm. that that as soon as they didn't need her anymore, she is off camera and gone. Yeah. And I think that that might contribute to this unnerving sense of being watched that you have with Emily Blunt that you as an audience kind of have along with her is that the camera is watching her the entire time. But it's from an outside looking in. Yeah. It, it, it almost feels like Hitchcock. In rear window in in this camera is watching them in the same way, you know, Jimmy is watching his neighbors, but we're not necessarily supposed to be seeing all these things. Well, and I think it really underscores something you were talking about earlier, Brad, which is kind of like that she is expendable, that there's a system operating way beyond her level 
and that we're kind of getting a, a you know a fly on the wall view of this much larger system at play and she's never in control even as she kind of tries to put her foot down and say you know I'm going to report everything you guys are doing no there's no way like she's going to get squashed like a bug and I think the the overarching theme of this movie is that there is a really corrupt system at play and the, uh, the ultimate moral is like, and she's not going to do anything to change it. And I think that like exactly what you said, the fact that the camera doesn't even regard her as like the star of the movie. It's whenever she's expendable, the camera moves away from her. And I think it really helps to underscore that theme. And I think one of the most brutal moments of the movie is when uh, Benicio del Toro gives her his little speech of like, Find yourself a small town somewhere where the rule of law still exists. Mm -hmm. You know, as for this country, it's full of wolves and only wolves will survive. Like, you can tell that he has rehearsed that speech over and over and that she is just the latest in a long line of FBI or DEA or whatever agents that they have chewed up and spit out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, I want to talk about Benicio del Toro for a minute because Brad, like if I'm being honest, he's the best part of this whole movie. He was he's the star oh, hands down. He's the star of the sequel. So it really is a story about him. I mean, the movie's named after him. The term Sicario apparently refers to hitmen in Mexico, and that's exactly what he is. He turns out to be an assassin. And I to this day, I'm still upset that he did not get his Oscar nomination for this movie because he absolutely deserved it. Now, nomination or win? No, not even nominated, Brad. He didn't get nominated? He didn't get nominated. What? Uh, me, 2015 was a pretty stacked year for movies. Here, Here's the uh, best supporting actor list. It was Christian Bale in The Big Short, Tom Hardy in The Revenant, Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight, Mark Rylance in Bridge of Spies, who ended up winning the award. And Sylvester Stallone in Creed. And I thought all five of those performances were great. But like someone has to go to get Benicio in this list because he is so, so good in this movie. He he really, really is. Uh, man, that's a tough list. I mean, I've seen The Revenant and Creed. I'm not sure if I've seen the other ones, but I, I would put uh, Benicio up there in this category. Holy cow. One of the things I love so much about Benicio's performance in this movie, too, is that He's so quiet for so long that his entire performance is done with his eyes. And there's times where his eyes are kind of looking around a room or, or you know, sitting on the highway and looking for who's coming to try to assassinate me. And you follow his eyes as well. There's other times where he just has the deadest look in his eyes. And you can tell that this is a man who has had everything taken from him and has nothing left to live for when he's just staring at Emily Blunt across the table at the end of the movie trying to get her to sign that form and you see nothing behind his eyes. It's horrifying. Like he is truly terrifying in parts of this movie, but there's other parts of the movie where you completely sympathize with him. Once you find out his backstory, it's such a brilliant nuanced layered performance. I wish it got more recognition than it did. Well, and Bob, I, I can't help but compare, you know, Benicio in this film to Chigurh in no country for old men. You know, they they both have this this hitman like feel to them. I mean, heck, they both are hitmen and they have a similar like you said, there's just no personality. There's no life. There's no soul in either of these men. And yet just giving, you know, Alejandro and Sicario this little bit of life, this little bit of, you know, I'm doing this 
because they killed my wife and my daughter. And not only did they kill them, but, you know, they they did it in horrible ways. Let's just say it that way. Yeah. That I, it's something that makes me go, okay, I get it. The deadness inside, I understand why it's there. And for me, not only does it make it a more endearing character, one that I can I can like kind of get behind, it's a character that I I enjoy watching. Whereas Shigur, there just feels like there's no reason for him to exist. He's just just pure evil for pure evilness's sake. I, I don't know. Am I hitting on something weird here? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think they are different characters because I wouldn't, I don't know that I would characterize Alejandro Benicio del Toro's character as a villain. Like it's, he's definitely operating inside of a corrupt system. And he's like, as Josh Brolin says about him, like he's going to whoever pays him to turn him loose. He just wants revenge for what happened to his family. And so I think he's like inherently a more sympathetic character. He is still a cold blooded character and an assassin and don't get in his way. And I think that kind of menacing thing about him still keeps, you know, there's an edge to him for sure. But it's hard for me to compare the two because, you know, Shigur in No Country is just, like you said, the epitome of evil. And I don't know that Alejandro really is that here. He's he's a man on a mission. And, and so I think he has a little bit more of a sympathetic arc than Shigur does. Well, in the end, I, I'm all about sympathetic characters, but I think that I need to get into this rare breed, Bob. Uh, I can I can wait no longer. <laughs> all right, Brad, we'll hit pause here. We'll come back to talking about some more performances after the break. Let's try this rare breed. So today we are checking out Wild Turkey Rare Breed. Now, Brad, we have not really dipped our toes very far into the world of Wild Turkey. In fact, the only Wild Turkey expression that we've had on the show was Wild Turkey's Long Branch, which is that collaboration with Matthew McConaughey, and which is not really quite in the overall general flavor profile of a Wild Turkey. So like, you know, the the original Wild Turkey, which is now known as Wild Turkey 101, is a beloved, you know, bargain bourbon for drinkers. People love the Wild Turkey 101. And to be honest with you, the 101 has never been like my preferred mixer, my preferred budget bourbon. And so I've always kind of shied away from putting Wild Turkey products into our schedule just because I'm not a huge Wild Turkey guy. And that's going to be like blasphemous to some people listening to this podcast. But I kept hearing more and more you know, if you don't like the 101, you got to at least try the Rare Breed. People kept telling me, pick up this bottle of Rare Breed. And Brad, it's not a cheap bottle of whiskey. And so I really was hesitant, but I had some bourbon money for my birthday. And I went out and said, you know what? I'll give it one try. I'll, I'll get one bottle of it. We'll see what we think. This bad boy is 116.8 proof. So I figured, you know, at least it's barrel proof. I'm getting like the biggest, boldest expression that Wild Turkey has to offer. 
Uh, and Brad, I'm going to give my thoughts on it here in a moment. But suffice it to say, I am now a fan of something from Wild Turkey because I immediately texted you and said, dude, <laughs> go out and buy a bottle of Wild Turkey Rare Breed. Yeah. And I've, within a few days, I was out there at my local liquor store purchasing it, took it home. And uh, on your recommendation, I took a sip right away. Nor normally, I like to save whiskeys and try them for the first time as we're recording. But I, I really couldn't stay away from this one, Bob. And I'm right there with you. Yeah. This is a daggone good smooth. If I, if I had to give it a word, it is smooth. 118, whatever it is, 16, 17, 18 proof whiskey that I, I'm excited to get into. Yeah, it definitely does have some alcohol to it, as you would expect for 116.8 proof. One of the things that's really coming out to me is the oak notes. There's a lot of oak on this, but it also leans a little bit more floral than I thought it would. It's really, really nice. It's a woodsy smelling whiskey to me. It has some of that, you know, general corn sweetness to it as well. But for me, I, I guess the word that I would use to describe this nose is woodsy. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. It, it has that nice oak wood smell to it. For me, it, it's almost got a little bit of bite to it that almost reminds me of like a sour grape, maybe, that it leans into the floral. I, I get what you're saying with that floral note. But there's just a little bit of sharpness to the nose that intrigues me on top of this nice, oaky, a little bit of vanilla, um, a little bit of caramel. Like it's it's definitely a bourbon with a little twist of something, something. You know what I mean? Every once in a while, we get a note of some sort of cola as well. And I do think this one has a lot of Coca-Cola on the nose for me. It's got that combination of like the the sweet caramel flavoring, like the, the uh, high fructose corn syrup. But that just that little bit of spice that you get when you have a Coca-Cola as well that you don't get on other cola products. Uh, and I really like that. So for me, it definitely has that that wood, oak, floral, and then a little bit of like a cola scent as well. Brad, I like this a lot. I think I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the nose. I'm pretty close there. I'll give it an eight out of ten on the nose. All right. Well, it's time for the moment of truth, Brad. Let's take a sip and see what we think. Woo. Wow, Bob, that is a beautiful whiskey. I feel like I'm getting a little bit of spicy notes on there that I mm -hmm. wasn't getting on the nose. Mm -hmm. um, almost like, I don't know if I would say cinnamon or like a licorice or uh, I, not, I don't know. There's some sort of baking spice type note on here that I'm really enjoying. I think that it it hits on all the right notes. Like it hits on that. It's just sweet enough. To remind you it's a bourbon, but it's not overpowering. There's a little bit of spice from whatever amount of rye is in this. And in the end, it just has this nice, solid underlayer of oak that's just a foundation for everything else that is going on in here. Mm -hmm. It's a daggone impressive whiskey, Bob. So, Brad, from what I'm seeing online, the mash bill is 75% corn, 13 rye, 12% malted barley. And I do think that it definitely does carry some of that rye spice on the flavor, on the palate. For me, a lot of those kind of Coca-Cola notes are carrying forward. Like you said, it's got a spice to it, and it's not quite like straight baking spice. Like, I wouldn't say this is very nutmeggy or anything like that. It just has that kind of sensation that I get when I drink a Coke. And that really does remind me of this. For a high-proof whiskey, you know, on my first, my first sip here, Brad... I had not become acclimated to drinking this, you know, today is my first drink of the day. 
and uh, it it definitely hits you. Like the alcohol makes itself known. But I will say, among high proof whiskeys that we've had on this show, this really does drink more smoothly than almost any of them. Once you take that second sip, it's I mean, it's dangerous how easy to drink this one is. Yeah, it's so dangerous, Bob, that you caught me taking another sip <laughs> right, right as you were saying how easy it was to drink. Bob, this is a smooth whiskey. The The flavors never overpower each other. The spiciness complements the sweetness. The it's a, it's a nice thick whiskey that coats your mouth and your tongue just beautifully. I, I'm really enjoying this, uh, this palette here. I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of 10. The only thing I disagree with you on, Brad, is that I wouldn't say this is a very thick whiskey. In terms of mouthfeel, I actually think this this drink's kind of thin, which is surprising considering how high alcohol content it is. But I think that kind of plays into how easy to drink this is, too, because like my mouth was almost fooled into thinking I was drinking a lower proof whiskey. And so I think I could probably down more of this than I could something like, oh, the uh, the Old Forester 1920, which is a really dark, thick, viscous whiskey. This isn't quite like that. And I think that it definitely makes me think I could pound some more of this and get absolutely blasted. <laughs> but in terms of the flavor, Brad, I'm pretty close to you. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the flavor. Well, hopefully we can uh, get through this episode before you're too far gone, Bob. <laughs> I think as I uh, as I get around to the finish, that's where you start to notice the power of that 116.8 proof. Like you, you start to notice it on the finish. It's got a beautiful Kentucky hug. It'll hit you, but it's not going to knock you out. And like you said, Bob, with that smoothness of the, the of the palate, I'm just really impressed with this finish. I, I think, if anything, those floral notes come through on the finish as it lingers on your palate. Um, I, I'm really enjoying it. it I'm going to give it a, once again, an 8 out of 10 on the finish. Yeah, Brad, I'm pretty close to you here. I mean, this is a whiskey that is, it's no age stated, but from what we see online, it looks like it's a blend of whiskeys that are at minimum six years old and at the most 12 years old. And I think on the finish, the oak character really kind of comes forward a little bit. I do have just a bit of that kind of Coca-Cola or maybe even like a sarsaparilla, like a root beer flavor left on my palate. But that's where the bitterness and the oakiness really starts to come out. And you do get a heck of a Kentucky hug if you're not expecting it at first. But on my palate, like what what stays behind on the finish really is that that barrel char, that oaky flavor. I like it, but I think that if there is a low point to the drinking experience here, it would be this finish. I'm just going to give it a seven and a half on the finish. And that brings us to overall balance. You know, here we're looking to see, did the nose inform the palate? Did it inform the finish? You know, how did the flavors match each other? And honestly, Bob, I think that this is overall one of the better balanced whiskeys we've had. You know, the, the flavors you get in the nose hit all the right boxes as you finish the drink. And so in a lot of different ways, this really is one of the smoothest whiskeys I've had. I think I'm going to give it once again an eight. We'll say an eight and a half on the on the balance. So, Brad, you know, from day to day, a whiskey can can be different to you. You know, like I, I could have this today and then tomorrow wake up and have a completely different drinking experience. And part of that is just the way my taste buds are reacting to things. Part of it might be what I ate for dinner. Who knows? When I first cracked this bottle. You know, a lot of people will say you need to give it time to breathe. I cracked it. I poured it immediately. It was so smooth that I could have drank it like with a straw <laughs> and it wouldn't have bothered me. Oh, in the two ish weeks that it's been kind of sitting on my shelf since then, 
it's definitely got more of a kick to it than it did before. And I'm trying to figure out, like, is it just because it had time to open up and breathe a little bit? Is it because it's just something that's different with me than it was two weeks ago? I can't tell. Uh, I think I need, like, more instances of drinking this to make a good call on that. But for right now, the balance for me is a little bit different than I would have said it was two weeks ago. Because it definitely packs more of a punch. I think overall, it doesn't give you anything that you weren't expecting. It's high alcohol. You can tell it from the nose all the way through to the finish. Uh, and some of the, you know, the scents from the aroma carried through all the way on the flavor and the finish as well. But right now, this Kentucky hug that I have is is a little bit harsher than I remembered it being a couple weeks ago. And so overall, Brad, I think I'm just going to give this an 8 out of 10 on balance. And that that brings us to value. You know, we're looking at, in the state of Ohio, a bottle of wild turkey rare breed for $43.99. You know, so after tax, you're spending about $50 on this bottle, $47, $48. I think that this is a really great barrel proof. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of companies, you're going to spend $50 plus yep. on a barrel proof whiskey, especially a major company like Wild Turkey. And so for me, I'm looking at this at $44, thinking to myself, man, if I had a a novice whiskey drinker who really enjoyed the craft and was starting to say, you know, uh, take me a little deeper, take me a little further up the proof, you know, line. What what have you got for me that's affordable and good? I would point them to rare breed mm-hmm. 10 out of 10 times. Mm-hmm. So so in my mind, it's not perfect value. I, th- I think if you got this for like $38, $39, it'd be a 10 out of 10 value. But as it is, I think this is a really great value. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10 on value. One of the things we said to each other, Brad, when I first told you to buy this and take a sip of it, was that there's really no one area where I think this is a 10 out of 10 whiskey but that it was like an eight or an eight and a half all the way across the board. And I still think that's the case. You know, for me, when I think of something to compare this to, honestly, the best comparison I really can think of is that old Forester 1920. And that typically retails for between 55 and $60 a bottle. So we're talking, you know, at least 10, maybe $15 more than what you'd be paying for this. And at that price point, Brad, I really can't think of another barrel proof bourbon that packs the punch that this one does, but is also as easy to drink as this and still not too hard on your wallet. I think this might be a nine out of 10 in terms of value, Brad. You know, and again, part of it is we always try to find a comparison point, something that we can point to to say, okay, well, it's not as cheap as this or it's it's way, way less expensive than this other thing. And for me, that comparison point is that 1920. And as long as this is going to stay $15 cheaper than that, I think this is a nine out of 10 on the value for me. So that is bringing me out to a 41 out of 50. Brad, what's your final score on Rare Breed? (laughs) Bob, I'm at a 40.5. 40.5. All right, so that's taking us to a 40.75 out of 50 or an 81.5 out of 100. This definitely hits that upper echelon for us. We always use this 40 mark as kind of, okay, we're going from good to very good to, okay, you hit 40. It's a definite recommendation from us. And I think this is, Brad, not only would I recommend people trying this, but I would actually recommend, if you can find it on the shelf, buying a bottle of Wild Turkey Rare Breed. Yeah, if you're getting a little more serious about your whiskey collection and you want to try out some really great barrel proofs, put Rare Breed at the top of your list. It is a must-have for your collection. All right, Brad, well, what do you say we get back into talking about Sicario? 
Let's get to it. So that was Wild Turkey Rare Breed. We are getting back into talking about Sicario, a movie that I love and I think Brad really, really likes. So, Brad, we left off kind of in the middle of talking about the performances. The other main actor in this film that we have not touched on yet is Josh Brolin, playing a very different type of role than he did a few months ago when we watched No Country for Old Men. And to be honest, Brad, I think that he's making choices here and and they work for the most part. He's he's playing a smarmy. You know, he's playing the U.S. government and like he yep. does a really good job at playing the U.S. government. I yep. just don't know that he really has an opportunity to do more than be a true supporting actor where he is supporting the other two main actors. Benicio is better in this. Emily Blunt's better than this. I don't think it's Josh Brolin's fault. I think it's just who his character is in this movie. I was going to say, Bob, I honestly, I kind of feel similarly about Emily Blunt in this movie. Like, I, I don't feel like she's really given a chance to shine. I, I feel like she spends a lot of time in this movie in a similar spot as Josh Brolin as just kind of walking around, saying a few lines, and Josh Brolin looks confident. Mm -hmm. That's like his thing, his his shindig. He looks confident and she looks scared. And like, that's their gig in this movie. And I think both of them do a really great job of it. Uh, overall, I like Emily Blunt a little more. You get a little bit more of a character fleshed out. But in the end, I, I just feel like the story for this movie, the lines that they're given aren't very deep. And, and so the movie isn't necessarily about them. It's more about the system that they work within. And so I, I kind of struggled with both Brolin and Blunt in this movie. I think the redeeming thing for Emily Blunt's character is that she gets the opportunity to be kind of haunted by what she's seeing. And I think kind of to the movie's detriment after a while, like there's only so many scenes I can watch of somebody being haunted by the choices they've made. And I think after that very first trip into Mexico, Emily Blunt's character for the whole rest of the movie is just like slowly unraveling. In a way that kind of reminded me a lot of when we watched The Departed earlier in this season, how Leo's character is kind of constantly unraveling and, and getting, you know, mm -hmm. more and more hooked on pills. And Emily Blunt in this is getting more and more back into smoking cigarettes, you know, as a crutch. And it, it reminded me of that a lot. But it doesn't really equal character growth or a character exactly. arc, really. And I think that if there is an area where this movie suffers, it is in character arcs and character growth. Because, again, like you said, Brad. It's it's more about pointing out what the system does to people. And so these characters aren't really characters. They're cogs in a machine. And that is part of the point of the movie. But I think the movie kind of keeps you at arm's length a little bit too much. And I don't know what you think about that, Brad, because I think the movie still is very effective. And it's a really well done movie. Technically brilliant. Um, but I just don't know how much I truly sympathize 
with the characters I'm viewing on screen. And I think this is the first time I've watched this movie since I saw it in the theater, Brad. And I remember coming out of the theater and being just completely wowed by what I'd seen. And now five years on, I think I can recognize I was wowed by this new, you know, kind of oncoming filmmaker having such a bold, confident movie that is just so clearly his. And now I think watching it a second time, I can kind of poke a a few more holes in it because it just didn't hold or it didn't grasp me as much as it did for the first time five years ago. Well, and there is something to be said for the fact that movies are meant to be watched in a movie theater. And I'm sorry, but watching this in my house just didn't quite capture me the same way that watching it in a theater would have. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that is meant to be seen in the theaters. And and one part of that, especially for me, was the score by Johan Johansson, Mm -hmm. which was spectacular. And if there's anything that kept me involved in the movie it was the way his music that that deep dark cello just kept driving home every beat of action it's it's so good and it fits the theme of the movie this this impending dread so well and brad i 100 percent agree with you because there are moments where that score gets ratcheted up to like 10 and it's like this pounding and in the movie theater i was on the edge of my seat some of these sequences had me like just completely white knuckled And coupling that with there's just something about the way that a movie screen reflects light where like some of these sequences that Roger Deakins filmed at night or at dusk when they're going into the tunnel and and all of the soldiers are silhouetted. It's a beautiful shot. And then they go into that cave or they, they, you know, they go into the entrance of the tunnel and it's almost like two shades of black. It's so hard to make out. But the the guy that's leading the troop pulls out a knife and it just kind of stays on his hand. And in the movie theater, I was like, this is the coolest shot I've ever seen because it's kind of, (laughs) it's the only shot, like only in a movie theater. Can you make out the different levels of black in that image and see what you're supposed to be seeing? And I feel like watching it on my TV at home, you know, with a glare coming in from the window, it just, it doesn't have quite the same effect. And I I hate to hold that against the movie because it's not the movie's fault. But it just did seem to lose something as a home viewing experience as opposed to a, a theatrical experience. But even with that in mind, what would you give this movie? You know, obviously, it sounds like you probably would have given it like a nine and a half, mm-hmm. maybe a 10 when you left the theaters five years ago. Yeah. But now having rewatched it, where are you at and what's your final score? Bob? So this is the hard thing, because I think I want to give it an eight and a half out of 10. But knowing where I was coming out of the theater, I was like, I think I gave it either a nine and a half or a 10 when I first reviewed it five years ago. So I'm like, okay, do I do I split the difference and just think maybe I wasn't in the mood for it this time? Or do I just kind of go all in on my eight and a half? I think I will split the difference, Brad. It's a really well-made movie. And I think technically it's brilliant. I think the performances are great. It held my attention. It's still suspenseful. I think I'd put it right on par with something like a No Country for Old Men. So I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. Nine out of 10 for me. As I came out of it, I just kind of sat back and was like, oh my gosh, that was one of the most entertaining and well-made movies I've seen in a long Mm -hmm. time. You know, there's issues. There's a few issues with the characters, which I don't know, Bob, that's always a struggle for me. I'm a sucker for great characters. And so anytime you have a movie that struggles with that, I I might not give it a 10 out of 10, 
But man, oh man, this is a phenomenal film. And I, I just, I love Denis for everything that he does uh, that I've seen thus far. So I, I'm excited to see what else he does. This is one of those movies that I think really illustrates the value of having a genius filmmaker behind the camera. Because, and, and I don't mean to say anything bad about like Michael Bay, right? But if you gave Michael Bay this script, he he could have taken this exact same script and made a Michael Bay movie out of it, right? The characters- yes. The characters are are very uh, like flimsy constructions. They're not very deeply written. There's not a whole ton of dialogue. Michael Bay could have made a Michael Bay movie out of this. And the fact that we got this movie that really, truly, you know, delves deeply into the ethical dilemmas at play. And again, that to the, to the script's credit, and the guy that wrote this is a fantastic screenwriter. I love his script for this movie. But what I'm saying is, Denis Villeneuve took the pauses, took the silences, read between the lines, and what he pulled out of this movie was the human toll, like the the haunting, you know, ethical questions. Whereas I think a lesser yes. filmmaker would have just filled it with more gunshots and explosions. And I yeah. think that's what makes this a truly great movie is there's a guy behind the camera who knows how to make the most of the long pauses that this movie takes. Well, and the most simple way to illustrate that, Bob, is to point out the action sequences and notice the fact that the, I don't know if there's a single like shaky cam <laughs> in this movie. No. Like every single shot is stationary, firm. It's in control, just like the members of the U.S. military are in control of the situation. Like there's not a single moment where the camera's flying around from explosion to gunshot to death to screaming. And I just love that. It, it it feels so much more precise than almost any other modern action film I've seen. I it just it was stunning to me. Man, I maybe I'm maybe I'm talking myself into a nine and a half. I was gonna I, say, I do you do you want to up it here? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll stick with my nine. But but man, oh man, I love this movie. Well, those are our thoughts on Sicario. But we want to hear what you think. So please reach out to us. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or you can leave us a voicemail. Let your voice be heard. What do you think about the movie Sicario? Heck, even just leave a voicemail giving us your best Denis Villeneuve <laughs> pronunciation. We would love to hear it. You can leave us a voicemail on our website, which is anchor.fm slash Film Whiskey. Next week, we will be back with our final movie of season three, Brad. We're wrapping it all no. up. Yeah. We Holy are, cow, man. Dude, I'm just, I'm so excited for the coin of destiny. Me too. We're, we're getting to it, but we have one more movie and that is Alfred Hitchcock's 1959 masterpiece, North by Northwest. So join us for that next week for the Film and Whiskey podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. In 2015, director Denis Villeneuve. Nope. No. Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. In 2015, director Denis Villeneuve. Is that Vill again? Villeneuve. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
In 2015, director, dr- director, director, <laughs> director, <laughs> director, 